Good morning. You know, it is not an uncommon thing for a family to work and save to get to that special amusement park in the state of Florida or California, or perhaps that big trip abroad to that famous city. And it is so common that when we get there and we come back and we give the report, we say it was great if it weren't for all the people, right? It's almost like we're shocked that other people want to go to that park or that country or that city. And uh, in some ways, that is kind of like applying spiritual truth and reality in our life as a follower of Jesus. It would be great if it weren't for all the people, right? Uh, It is interesting, at the end of Galatians chapter 5, we looked at last week, Uh, It said that if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. In other words, if God has changed us, if He's he's, uh, altered our life, changed our heart, caused us to be born again, we have the Spirit inside of us. And if God has given his spirit to us, we want to stay in rhythm, stay in step, stay in line with the Spirit. And sometimes we think, well, I think I could do that if it weren't for all the people. Uh, The people that I go to school with or I work with or the people in my family, uh, whatever the case may be. Perhaps it is for that reason that immediately after talking about this idea of keeping in step with the Spirit, Paul turns his attention to the men and women who are part of the church in Galatia, and he says, how is this keeping in step with the Spirit, how is it going to be manifested in the way you interact with one another? And so that's why in chapter 6, he's turning his attention to issues that every group of Christians will face. And we're going to look at that this morning. So if you take notes, there are three things uh, that we want uh, to look at from this text. One is the burdens that we share. Uh, The second is the snare of compare, which I stole from my wife. Uh, And number three is the burden uh, that we must bear or the load we must bear. So let's look at that. First of all, the burden that we share. Notice he begins immediately saying that even though we have the Spirit in us and should keep in step with the Spirit, it is not uncommon that the people we're in community with will sometimes struggle doing that. Notice the language that Paul uses in chapter 6, verse 1. He says, brothers, if anyone is caught In any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. There that word transgression can also be interpreted as if anyone gets out of step. If anyone fails to keep in step with the Spirit. If you see someone who's struggling, and I love that because the word there for caught in the transgression has the implication of surprise. They become entrapped. It's something that comes upon them. And it causes them to get out of step with the Spirit. Boy, doesn't that happen. I love the reality of the Apostle Paul. 
Even though he's telling every single man, woman, and young person there in the church of Galatians that if they, have, uh, if they belong to Christ Jesus, that they should crucify the flesh along with his passions. They have the Spirit. They should keep in step with the Spirit. Uh, just one verse later, he says, but you're going to see people who are having a hard time doing that. They're, they're out of step with the Spirit. They've been caught. They've been surprised. They've been entrapped by this transgression. How do we deal with that? And I love the way he explains the response of people. He says that those who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Now, I know uh, that some of you right now are thinking about someone that you know who is struggling to stay in step with what God's Word says. They're struggling to stay on, if you will, the straight and the narrow. And you've been meaning to have a conversation with them about that, perhaps. And you've been putting it off. Here, the Apostle Paul says, part of the way we stay in step with the Spirit is by helping one another. He uses this word restore, which means to put in order. It can also be interpreted in different places as to reset a dislocated bone. In other words, this is a Christian who sees someone whose general trajectory of their life is to want to honor God, to serve Christ, to enjoy Him, but they have been caught in this out-of-step action, this out-of-step choice this out-of-step mistake, this transgression, and what do we do? We want to help them get things back in order. We want to take that dislocated part of their life and get it back aligned. Now, I don't know. I know that uh, uh, not all of you watch sports, but one of the things that happens when you watch a lot of sports, especially if it's contact in any way, is you occasionally see someone get a bone out of, out of alignment. They get hit really hard, and usually it's a shoulder, it seems like, for some, for some reason. And you, and you see a guy running off the field, and he's holding the side of his arm, and ah, you know, and he's yelling, and he's in deep pain. And, and I love it, the compassionate men on the sideline, you know, there's always one guy that comes up, and they have one guy hold him, and the other guy just jerks his arm back into joint. And it does not look pleasant. Have, has anybody here ever had that happen? Yes, two people are nodding. Two people have had a shoulder thrown out. But why would they do that? Why would they hurt him? Why would they apply that pressure? He's already in pain. Why would they assert such, such strong force to his shoulder to, to get it back in the joint? Because then it feels better. As a matter of fact, sometimes the guy goes back in the game. Now, that's just messed up, Right? <laughs> You know, how important is this game, right? This guy's screaming in pain one second, and he's running back on there. What are the odds that will happen again, right? But here this is what the Apostle Paul is saying. That when we see our brother or sister and they're struggling, they've been caught, they're surprised because they've gotten out of step with the Spirit. What we want to do is help them get their life aligned again. In other words, the motivation is not punitive. It's helpful. It's taking something that's out of order and putting it in order. And notice how he says to do it with a spirit of gentleness. 
Now here, this is the same word that he used earlier when he was talking about the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit, he says back in verse 22, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, uh, faithfulness, gentleness. He says it is an application of the Spirit's work in us that when we deal with someone who's out of step, whose life is now out of order, that we gently seek to get them back in line. Isn't that a beautiful picture? The way the Apostle Paul says that we need to help one another. And then he says that by doing this, it shows that we are sharing something that's very important to share as believers. Notice uh, as he continues, he says in verse 2, Bear one another burden and so fulfill the law of Christ. He says when we see that person and they're struggling, what we recognize is that they are under a heavy burden. This is a big weight, something that's too big for them to carry by themselves. And what we do to help them is we come alongside of them because that's the only way that they and us together can share the heaviness of the load and we get close to them and we work with them to help them get realigned with what God wants in their life. I love that picture because it's a picture that when we see that person struggling, we don't think of it as just their problem, but we immediately own it as our problem. That part of our goal is to help one another get through the journey that God has given us to the end result, which is life eternal with him. And we know that along the way, the burdens are going to be very heavy for all of us at some uh, point in time. And for some of us, it seems all of the time. And we need brothers and sisters who are willing to get close to us and get under that heavy load and to share the weight of it. Now, I know some of you experienced this in a very practical way this week uh, because it is the week of Thanksgiving. This is the week where we sort of move from our focus on feasting to our focus on the festivities of Christmas. And some of you, I have no doubt, had tubs or giant bags or uh, maybe just a few trash bags somewhere in your basement or in your attic that are especially heavy, filled with Christmas decorations. And while your family was there, you decided to take advantage of the opportunity and get them to help you with that heavy load. You said, all right, I hope you enjoyed Thanksgiving meal for our post-meal exercise. Let's go downstairs and get the Christmas tree, right? It's always a great way to test family unity, right? <laughs> And you know how it is. I don't know about you, but, you know, my poor wife and I, because we have moved hither and yon uh, throughout the years, has been my helper in moving heavy items, often up or downstairs. And, and I, can, I can tell you that that is a good test of our relationship. Right? You know, stop going so fast. Speed up. You know, are, are you carrying any of the weight? This is what I say to my wife, right, you know, as we're trying to, to go along. And, and what are we doing? We have to stay in sync. We have to help one another because whatever it is we're carrying, it's too heavy for one of us. And oftentimes we get into situations, not just sin, but life's problems, whether it's an illness or a trial or a financial setback or a loss of a job or a failure on a test 
or whatever the case may be, and we just can't stand up under the weight of the burden that God and his providence has given us. And that's why he's given us brothers and sisters in Christ, that they will come alongside of us, that they will help us, but we have to stay close uh, for that to happen. Now, when we do this, uh, Paul says we need to watch ourselves. We need to be careful. I love it. It says at the end of verse 1, keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. What, what does that mean? The writers are, are very, uh, you know, prolific when it comes to their words on this particular topic. What does it mean, lest you also be tempted? Well, they say there are two ways that when we're carrying the load of our brother or sister, when we're helping them, whether in sin or some other issue, that we can be tempted. The first of which is that we can become judgmental and we can look down our noses at the person because of their struggle. Now, I, I, don't, I don't know if this happened to any of you uh, this week, but some of you had the opportunity, maybe you still are, spending time with friends or family for Thanksgiving. If you're a visitor doing that and they dragged you to church this morning here, hey, thanks for, thanks for coming. It may have been involuntary on your part, but I'm glad you're here. You know, but one of the things that's, uh, that's very fascinating uh, about being with family is there's a need to detox when we see, say, after we say goodbye to them, whether they leave our house uh, or we're leaving the house. I remember, I know that some of you have never thought about this perhaps, uh, but uh, every time, and I have to be careful because my parents do listen to my sermons, uh, every time as a young family we left my parents' house in South Carolina, we basically got to Tennessee, uh, or when we lived in Florida, to Georgia debriefing on exactly what happened while we were with my family, right? We had to get it out of our system. And the first reaction when we're with other people, and I'm sure none of you did this this week. I'm sure you're all perfectly innocent, so this is a hypothetical. The first thing we do is we look to whoever we're driving with and we say, can you believe they said that? Can you believe they're raising their child this way? Can you believe they spent all that money on that? Can you believe she thinks that color looks good on her hair? Right? You know, I don't know. I don't know what y'all talk about. I'm sure that all of you are very spiritual. And you say, oh, wasn't that an amazing prayer they prayed, you know, at the Thanksgiving table. That's one of you. And the rest of you are like, can you believe they didn't call? Right? You know, I mean, it's. That's the way it is. Our first reaction is to be tempted to be judgmental. And so this is why many writers, they say this is what it means, that when we help each other with another burden, especially if it's helping them uh, get rightly aligned in a sin, it's something we need to watch ourselves that we don't think that we're any better than they are. And we'll come back to that in a second. But the second thing that it possibly could mean, and I think we can go either way, is that when we are helping someone else with a sin, for whatever reason, it sometimes causes that temptation to become more real and less resistible in our lives than before we helped that person. 
my wife and I were talking about how years and years ago we got involved in a situation with a couple's marriage in our church, and it was very difficult. There were a lot of sinful and, and negative things coming along, and we were trying to come alongside of them and to bear that burden. And I can tell you what happened as that dragged on to weeks to months of time working with this couple. My wife and I became less patient, more snippy, more judgmental uh, with one another. And there were times we actually thought and said to one another, why are we talking to each other like this? And it's because you get so involved in the sin and temptation of that other that it sort of begins to be the way you're thinking and the way you're talking. And we need to be careful about that. Paul says, I love it in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, therefore let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And I think both are very much temptations as we get close to people and help them bear their burdens. We need to be careful that we don't have a heart of judgment and that we don't let down our guard in our own lives about those temptations and snares that we're helping that other person through. But yet we stay together. We help share the burden of that other person. Notice I love Paul's language. He says when we do this, he says that we fulfill the law of Christ. What does that mean? What does Paul mean when he says by helping one another, by coming alongside of each other, by trying to restore one another, we are fulfilling the law of Christ? Well, I think we can see uh, some help in that if we look back in chapter 5 and verse 13 and 14. There Paul says, For you are called the freedom brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. See, just a few verses earlier, Paul is saying, look, but the summary, if you will, the thing that all of God's word is pointing to is that we love him and that we love our neighbor as ourselves. So perhaps this is what Paul has in mind when we're actually under the load, that heavy burden with our brother or sister. We are showing that Christ has changed our heart and life so much so that we would be inconvenienced for the sake of another. And in doing so, we're showing the love of Christ in that situation. Perhaps he has in mind the words of Jesus in John chapter 13. Uh, he says in verse 34 to his disciples, the night that he was betrayed, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. What is it that Jesus says? What is the encapsulation of everything I have shown you and taught you is that I love you and now I want you to love other people the way you've seen me love you. And how did Jesus love us? Not just in word but in deed by even going to bear the judgment of God and the penalty for sin on the cross in our place, to actually lay down his life for those who were his enemies and who hated him, to show how complete and perfect was his love for them. He says, you should love other people the way that I have loved you. 
That totally fits in with this context, doesn't it? Why does he call it the law of Christ? Because he's dealing with a group of people who are hung up on all these other rules and regulations. And he says, let's focus on the main thing, the thing that will cause every other fruit of the Spirit to grow and blossom. If we focused on the love God has shown us in Christ and we trust him to work through us that love as we bear the burdens of others. All right. So now we have the question, how are we doing? Who are we so close to? Who do we care for so much that we're helping? How are we helping that person who's struggling to stay in step by coming alongside of them and helping them along uh, gently as they seek to be realigned with the work of the Spirit in their life? Who are we coming alongside of in their providential load that they are carrying so that we can take some of the weight? This is the way Paul understands the community of faith. But secondly, we need to avoid the snare of compare. We see that really in verse 3 and 4. Notice he gives this enigmatic statement. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each of us test his own work, uh, and then his reason will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own Load Here, what is the connection between this verse and the verse that goes before it? Well, the reality is that one of the reasons we do not get close to another person and help them bear a heavy load is because we think that is beneath us. We, we think they got themselves into their own mess. We think it's their fault they're struggling. And we think that could never happen to us. And we begin to think we are something when, in fact, we are nothing. Now, what does Paul mean when he says they think, don't think you're something when you are nothing? He's not denying the truth of God's word that every single human being it is is made in the image of God, that God has created us to reflect his character and his glory in this world, that each person is fearfully and wonderfully made, that they are precious because they have been made by God. He's not denying that, but what is he saying? He is saying without God, without his help, without Jesus Christ, in fact, you are nothing. I love it. Jesus uh, says it in John uh, 15, verse 5. He tells his disciples again that same night, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. You see, too often when we have that attitude of judgmentalism about that person who's struggling, whether it's just with a circumstance or whether it's staying in line with the Spirit, too often we forget that in any way that we are enjoying good things, good life, the blessings of God, it is His grace and it is His kindness that allows us to do that. 
right? It's so easy for us to do, isn't it? Let's just take a classic example in the culture at large. I'm sure it doesn't apply to any of you. But we think about all of the needs of those who are financially uh, less fortunate than you are. You might have even been listening to our deacon's report this morning and said, why is it that we're spending $176,000 a year on all these people who are struggling? Why don't they just get a job? Why don't they work harder? Why don't they, you know, just do this or do that? or go back to school or whatever and it's so easy to fall into that and we forget how is it that we have the physical health to do that job how is it that we had the mental clarity or ability to get that education how is it that we had the resources to have every single advantage that we've enjoyed it wasn't because of you it was because of God's grace bestowed upon you. He gave you your health. He gave you your intellect. He gave you the family you were born in. He gave you the country uh, that you grew up in. He gave you all of these gifts. And it's so easy for us to forget all of that that he has done. And we think we're something when we're nothing. I think about the church in Laodicea. They're always a good one to think of in these situations. Most of us in Revelation chapter 3 think of the church of Laodicea and we think, oh yeah, those are the lukewarm people. And you're right. Good job. Bible trivia, you get the gold star. But my favorite part of the letter to the church of Laodicea is the part that strikes me to the heart every time. It's in Revelation chapter 3. And for those of you who grew up in other traditions, you're like, wow, my Presbyterian pastor is quoting out of Revelation. All right. We love the first few few chapters, just side note. We love it all. I've distracted myself so that I've forgotten where I am. Verse 17. Jesus is saying to this church, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I love that. He says, you've forgotten that without God you're nothing. You think you're something and you're nothing. That's what Paul is saying. We have to be careful. Why am I stressing this so much? Because we are so prone, or maybe it's just me. Maybe it's just me. I am so prone to being a judgmental jerk. I just am. I am so prone to that. And so if it's just me that I'm preaching to, I apologize. But I don't think I'm alone. I think there are at least four of us in this room who are struggling with being judgmental jerks. And we see people under the burden, and we say it's their own fault. I would never get in that situation. I love it. The writer, I've shared a couple quotes from him, Richard Longenecker, who is one of the best commentators on the book of Galatians. Uh, He makes this quote about Paul's concern for this subject. He says, while Paul is always against sin in whatever form, for him, pride, aloofness, and conceit, were also sinful, being often, in fact, far more damaging to the community of believers and the gospel message than overt moral lapses. And I say amen to that. It's so much more damaging to the church 
when we are condemning and judging of one another, rather than gently coming along and bearing the load with one another, helping to restore people. It is far more damaging, not only to our enjoyment of fellowship as a group of people, but it's far more damaging to our reputation to a lost world who needs to hear about Jesus. They say, why in the world do I want to be in that group of judgmental jerks? All five of them, including the pastor, right? No. But who doesn't want to be in a place where when you're overburdened, they come alongside of you and say, let me help carry that with you. Let me help you find the order that God wants for your life that you could enjoy the freedom and liberty that he desires for you to have. And that's why Paul is stressing this, right? He says, what should we do? He says, we should examine, uh, let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not uh, in his neighbor. Just quickly, Paul's encouraging people, instead of being judgmental, to do a little self-examination. Now, let me be very clear. There is a difference between self-examination and introspection. And I know it's a minor point. I'm not going to make a big deal about it. Self-examination is when I look inside of my life. I look at my thoughts and my words and my deeds, and I say, how do those measure up with what God's Word says my thoughts are? words and deeds should look like. How am I doing? Am I doing what he says? Am I enjoying him? Am I trusting his spirit to help me in these ways? That's self-examination. That's us looking and saying, how am I doing? I told you a couple weeks ago, try on for size just writing down everything you say in a week and how much of what we say is actually loving and truthful and helpful and see how you do. That's self-examination. Introspection is I look inside myself and say, how do I feel about myself? How am I feeling about myself? I feel pretty good about myself. That could have more to do with the eggs you ate for breakfast and how much coffee you've had today than actual conformity to the work of the Spirit in your life. Self-examination says, what has God told me? How does my life look in contrast with that? Introspection is just, how am I feeling? And those are two very, very different things. And, of course, we avoid comparison. Too often, and I hear people do this all the time, you say, well, how are you doing? And, I'm, and it's okay if you say this. Don't be self-conscious about it. But you say, better than most. So your well-being is based on you being better, doing better than most. That's comparison. You know, how are you doing? I mean, this is a classic example. You know, if you had siblings growing up, you know this thing, right? Your parent comes to you and says, look, why don't, your room is a mess. Why haven't you cleaned up your room? And, you, and immediately, this is child logic 101. My room is better than Susie's, right? The sister's whose room is only slightly out of order compared to, as my mother would say, the pigsty that you are living in. But immediately we move away from self-examination, like looking around at the room and saying, yes, there is complete disarray and disorder in this room. I will correct it, mother. Thank you for that gentle <laughs> reminder to be back in line, right? Instead, we say, well, I feel better about myself because it's not as messy as this person's. And so Paul says, look, that's the deal. When we think about ourselves, let's ask, how are we conforming to what God's word says instead of getting caught in the snare 
of comparing ourselves with others. And he kind of mentioned that at the end of our text that we did last week. Because if we compare ourselves to others, we end up with two things. Either we're combative and competitive or envious of other people. And neither of those are going to help us walk with the Spirit. So, lastly, this burden, uh, the load that we must bear. Notice in verse 5, it's very enigmatic. We need to get to this. It says, for each will have to bear his own load. Wait a second. (laughs) Is this a contradiction? Didn't he just say, bear one another's burdens? And here he says, we must each bear his own load. Well, they're two different words. That's helpful, right? The the word for load, uh, you know, in the part of us sharing the burden, us coming alongside with someone else, uh, that is uh, generally denoted as a very heavy load, a very heavy load, a great weight. And here, this uh, word that's that we must bear his own load is often used in Greek uh, for a soldier's knapsack or a pilgrim's backpack or a ship's cargo. And in other words, it's a different word. And, and that's not always true, but that's, that's often true. And so that's helpful. But what does he mean? He means that at the end of the day, notice the, the language there, for each will have to bear his own load. This is talking about the future. When in the future... Well, we have to take ownership of the stuff that God has given us to carry. Paul here is referring to the end of all things. He's referring to that time when, we, when Jesus comes back again, when we stand before him and we give an account for our life. He's looking ahead at that time of judgment. He says at that point, each person has to stand under his own backpack, his own knapsack, his own cargo. That's when other people can't help us. We have to give an account. Now, in this context, Paul is not talking about the reality, even though it's true, that at the end of the day, we're all going to stand before God and answer uh, for our lives. We are going to have to answer the question, why should God let us into his heaven? Our parents can't do that for us. Our grandparents can't do that for us. Our siblings can't do that for us. Our spouse can't do that for us. We will have to stand before God ourselves. It's not what he's referring to here, but it's a good thing to remember as we've spent an awful lot of time around family this week, their strong faith and commitment to Jesus won't help us when we stand before God at the end of our life or at the end of the world. We have to be able to stand there based not on how much we've done or how hard we've worked or how moral we've been. Because if we try to stand there with that, it simply will fall short. All of it will be seen for the worthless, dirty rags that they are. Instead, we want to stand there only in the perfect righteousness and obedience of Jesus Christ that has been applied to us because we ourselves put trust in him. We said, I'll stop relying on how hard I'm working and I will trust in what Jesus has perfectly done and his life, death, and resurrection. All of us will face that. It's important for me as a preacher of the gospel to remind you time and time again, you have to be able to answer that question yourself. How will you be able to stand before God? And if you say it's because of anything you've done 
or said or not done or not said, you're not ready to meet him. It has to be because you have put your trust in Christ and him alone. But here Paul is talking about something else. That after we're accepted, after we're uh, invited into heaven, there is this thing called a judgment of where God asks us, what did you do with the gifts and the work of the Spirit in your life? He tells the Corinthians somewhere else, will it be like Everything we did was wood, hay, and stubble. Or will it be something meaningful? Here Paul is saying, remember, even though we are drawn into the snare of compare to think I'm doing better than that person, the, answer, the question we are going to essentially be asked before God is, what did you do with what I gave you? With that opportunity, with those gifts, with the health, with the education, with the wealth, what did you do with it? What did you do with it? How were you faithful? How did you stay in step with the Spirit? And there's no danger of judgment into hell at that point, but there is an answering for what we did with what God has given us. Paul says that's the load that we must bear ourselves. We have to be able to answer that question. Why does the Bible tell us stuff like that? I don't want to leave it there. I want to finish with this. Why does the Bible tell us that we're going to have to answer for that kind of thing. I want to be very clear. It is not because Paul is trying to scare people. Paul's not trying to scare the Galatians. He wasn't trying to scare the Corinthians. He was trying to be full disclosure with them. That there's an accountability with God. When he gives you something, there's an accountability there. He's not trying to scare them. He's trying to motivate them. He, he's trying to let them know that at some point you're going to be able to thank God for all of his gifts that he's given you. And you're going to be able to give him praise and glory for what you were able to do through, your, through his spirit and his work in you. And you're going to be able to say, God, look at what you did through me. Because that's the way I read it. And that's a great opportunity. And then he's going to say, enter into the pleasure of your reward. He's going to reward you for the three talents or five talents that you invested in the kingdom. You will be put in charge of cities. This is the language the Bible uses. In other words, he will say, you have been faithful with what I have given you through my spirit And I want to continue to bless you for all eternity. But when we get there, we have to answer for ourselves. We won't be able to pull that, you know, reprobate that we always compared ourselves to next to us and say, look how good I look next to them, God. That's not the way it's going to work. And so what Paul is telling the Galatians and us, then why are we still practicing that when that's not going to be helpful in the end? Instead, let's come alongside that person and help them. Let's gently get them back in line. Let's bear that burden with them. Let's stop comparing how we're doing with other people. And let's be prepared to give a joyful answer to God for how we stewarded all that he had given to us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you and thank you for your kindness and grace. Lord, on that day when we stand before you, there will be nothing good that we report that was not given by you and through you, even if it was manifested in us. Oh, Lord, we pray that even now 
that we will keep in step with the Spirit by bearing and sharing the burdens of those that we are in community of faith with, that we will, O oh Lord, repent of our judgmentalism and our harshness with others, and that we will remember that without you we are nothing. And Lord, help us, O oh Lord, through your Spirit, to gladly steward every gifted opportunity you give us and our thoughts, our words, our deeds, our work, our, our education, and in everything, that we will be able to be excited before you when we stand there on that last day. Give us grace, we pray, for these things. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.